Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series. Today, it is my absolute pleasure to have Satya Yanakaran join me. Welcome. Hi, Melissa. Great to be here. Brilliant to have you. Now, I'm going to jump straight in. In this series, we're talking about um, no more secrets. So leaders sharing their journeys. So I'm excited to get into the conversation with you. Let me touch on your bio so people know if they haven't come across you before and know who I'm talking to. So Sasha is doing incredible work as the Australia and New Zealand Director for Talent Beyond Boundaries. Uh, Talent Beyond Boundaries is a global not-for-profit organisation working to unlock skilled migration pathways for refugees and other displaced people. She's currently leading the rollout of a skilled refugee labour agreement pilot program in Australia, um, which is looking to move 200 families on employer-sponsored skilled migration visas. And it's co-designed by Talent Beyond Boundaries and also the Department of Home Affairs. Sachia is an immigration lawyer and outside of work, a wife, a mum to two daughters and loves to sing. So I teased her earlier, we'd kick off with a song. I'll let you off the hook. Welcome to the conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm sure we can save our listeners of my voice. <laughs> <laughs> feel free to break into song at any point in the conversation, should, should it feel fitting or for no random reason at all. So, okay. So for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure of meeting you before, let's just jump, jump straight into your background and who you are as a human being and, and your journey. Sure. It's like, where do you start? It's like, like asking someone in the beginning, what happened? <laughs> um, so my, I'll start with my family. So I'm of Sri Lankan descent. I was born in Australia um, and my parents actually traveled to Australia from Sri Lanka to study. So they, they're both lawyers themselves. So I kept up with the trend in the family, um, but they came to do their masters. And it was around that time that the civil war in Sri Lanka broke out. So they obviously could not return um, and ended up staying in Australia. Um, thankfully for me, I'm extremely grateful for the future that I've had because of that um, yeah, situation. Um, and since then, you know, growing up in Australia has just been, you know, seeing my parents work really, really hard as lawyers. Um, and my interaction with, I guess, the migration space actually started with them. Um, they had their own practice. Um, a large part of that practice was actually helping refugees, um, particularly from Sri Lanka at the time, to migrate to Australia because of the, the unfortunate situation there. So I would, you know, I was their unpaid intern, um, their receptionist, uh, their, you know, barista, everything under the sun as I grew up just to help them, you know, do what they were doing. But I learned an immense amount of things from them and about the immigration space at that time. Um, I wouldn't say that I chose my pathway in terms of practicing in immigration, um, but it just so happened that once I finished my degree, the first interview I had was with Fragerman, um, who is, you know, the largest immigration provider in Australia. And there my journey started. Um, and it wasn't in the refugee space. It was straight into, you know, employer-sponsored migration. So I was working with, you know, blue chip companies, moving their employees around the world, which is a very new thing um, for me. So I learned that, you know, through mentors at, at Fragerman. Um, and then my career just sort of progressed, I think, as any other um, law graduate that moves up that sort of corporate chain. Um, but I think it was about five years ago, I'd say, I started thinking about, you know, what is it that I'm doing? Um, what's the purpose of what I'm doing? And yes, it is to, you know, you get married, have a family, you need to pay the bills. Yes, there's that. 
but what is it that I, you know, that I was passionate about? <laughs> and when you're in the middle of just working, you forget that you either lose passion or you actually don't know. You sort of stop and go, why am I doing this? I, I don't understand. And, you know, 15 years later, yes. um, you think, you know, why did I get in this space? And it was when I met Talent Beyond Boundaries. So I worked at EY as a, as a manager and immigration lawyer, came across Talent Beyond Boundaries right after I had my second child. <laughs> when I came back thinking, what do I want to do with my career? All the hormones were raging. What's and, life you know, all about? What's life all about? Um, is it just about sleep deprivation and bringing up my kids after this? Um, but Talent Beyond Boundaries had approached EY, um, were working with EY to get some visas through of their initial pilot in Australia. So having worked in the skilled migration space, I'd never turned my mind to refugees being a talent pool. Yes. And that was huge <laughs> because all you know is that refugees and others who are displaced are there because of war and conflict. They're vulnerable, um, but no one asked the question about skills. Mm. So when I saw that, I just felt this buzz. <laughs> and I even remember the day um, my manager sent me the link to their website and there was this video. It was just like a two minute or one minute video. And at the end of the video, I felt this warmth in my heart, which was similar to when you hold your child in your hand when it's born. Oh, wow. Like it was just this fluttering of overwhelming, you know, love, compassion, but drive that, you know, wow, this is a mission I have to be a part of. Of course, there wasn't a job at Television Boundaries at that point. But funnily enough, I really think that, you know, if you generate enough of those sort of thoughts of what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? I really do think that things end up coming your way because of that. So, of course, I think a year later, after I met Talent Beyond Boundaries, there was the opening for the Australian New Zealand director role. And I was like, yep, hands down. I know where I'm going. I mean, um, yeah. So that was like an instant, you know, decision. Um, but then when the actual move came, that was an interesting change in my life because I was just used to being in the corporate world, right? So everything, because my the employer after Fragment was EY and um, EY is, you know, one of the big four accounting firms, equally large, um, had a corporate letter I had to go up as, you know, as you expect. So making a jump from that to like a not-for-profit, you know, hadn't worked in the sector at all. Um, it's funny how I just knew I wanted the change and I followed mm -hmm. it. Um, but I think I went through a few motions to make that, you know, decision career-wise. Um, but the passion just overtook <laughs> everything else, you know, all financial, career, everything kind of set aside. I was like, this is what I want to do. And do you um, have good, Did you have good um, mentors along the way in your career? Absolutely. I'm, you know, the, the work that I'm doing to date um, you know, in this space is very much due to my mentors and, you know, going right back from, you know, back to Fragment, right? Um, I had to learn employer-sponsored migration from scratch. It's not taught in, as part of the university course. And I still remember the very first mentor I had was Vera Poole. And it was just her and myself in a room. I was a graduate. She had a whiteboard and she was able to draw, <laughs> the structure of the migration legislation and how everything worked from that point. And I never forgot that. Wow. So whenever, even to this day, whenever I think of how do I solve a com complex problem, I go back to that one day in the room with Vera thinking she was able to communicate one of the most complex pieces of legislation and its structure 
on a whiteboard in a drawing for me that just stuck with me. So absolutely, like that's one mentor I absolutely want to call out. Um, and along the way, like it's been, you know, a combination of people who've come from different walks of life. So they've had different journeys. Some people, a lot of my mentors actually have come from small businesses. So they've had their own practice yes. um, and then they've merged with, a, you know, a larger firm. So a lot of the learnings that they brought along from, you know, being, you know, a business owner themselves, but then moving into a larger organization, how did they adjust to it? Um, what are the things that they had to to change to adjust to it like all of that really helped in my adjustment now um in you know moving to you know a different career path so absolutely like I I feel like if we start the con the topic of mentors there's a whole list of them that I'd have to call out <laughs> okay so um I would love to know um your perspective firstly on leadership and I'd love to know your thoughts around whether leaders are born or made yeah good question um, and it's a it's an interesting one, and I was thinking about it, um, you know, just before I logged on. And the key phrase that came to my mind thinking about this question was that you need to be led to be a good leader. So you need to have been led by someone <laughs> to then grow into the leader that you become, because I think each person turns into a, a different personality as a leader. Um, depending on their experience. So there's two ways. One is there are certain qualities that you might say people are born with and that's just their personality. Yes. But the tricky thing with saying that is those who might have qualities that you don't think are necessarily leadership qualities might have a superpower that makes them a leader in a particular context. So I do think that um, leaders are made from their experience, good and bad. So I think the other key thing to think about is that, yes, sometimes we come across working with leaders that we might, you know, complain about, say, oh, don't like this, don't like that. But funnily enough, when you get onto that, you know, when you've got that responsibility, you think of the things that you said about your leaders <laughs> and you don't want to be doing those things or you then understand why those leaders operated the way they did and you adopt the way they led um, as, as an informing or as an inspiration to how you lead. So I think the answer to my answer is best. Yes, you're made. Definitely you're made. Um, you might be a born leader with leadership qualities, but you do need that experience um, to, to get to, you know, what, what you are as a leader and each leader is going to be different. Sacha, you shared with me when we first got together that when you moved to Talent Beyond Boundaries, you had to think about leadership differently. Yeah, absolutely. What was that? Yeah, so, um, and that was, again, through experience. So, you know, going up a corporate ladder, um, you get, you know, to a certain level, and then you're, you know, you're thought about as, okay, this is a leadership role, you know, as a manager or a senior manager. And you're groomed in a certain way, you're given targets to meet to show that you've got that capability. And that's very much defined. Um, so in a sense, it's almost easier, like you know what's expected of you. So you either meet it or you don't really. Um, but moving to Talent Beyond Boundaries, like in the very first few months, like I had, you know, I was um, responsible for this pilot, which was one thing. But, you know, the pilot is not just, you know, setting up the system to move families. Um, leading this pilot was actually looking at how a business is going to recruit these individuals how are we going to get the visas if there are barriers? How do you work with that with the government? And then finally, actually getting them here. 
<laughs> and um, coming from a, a corporate environment to this environment, it was as a leader, I had to do absolutely everything to achieve that goal. Mm. So it wasn't a question of oh, delegate to someone to do this part or delegate to do that, or that's not my job. Actually, everything <laughs> is my job. <laughs> and you have to have that passion and drive for that ultimate goal to be able to do it. And I'll just, I'll share the, the very first sort of candidate I came across through this program. Um, her name is Maya. She's working as a civil engineer in Esperance in WA um, with a with a um, engineering firm. And her um, particular scenario was firstly that she was my first sort of candidate since I joined Talent Beyond Boundaries. Um, she was moving through COVID. <laughs> so she had gotten her visa. Um, the borders were still closed uh, in Western Australia. So we had to come up with what, what is the strategy to get her through to Australia, but then through the border of, the, of WA, given the COVID restrictions. And that involved um, not just working with the governments on what's allowed, but it also involved who was gonna pick her up from the airport, who was gonna take her to her accommodation. And it was at that point where I was like, well, I'll do it. I'll pick her up from the airport. I'll meet her there. We have to get her there by a certain time. I'll do it. Um, and then it was, you know, crisis point because WA then changed their ratings during COVID of, you know, Sydney being a high risk yes. location. So we had to move her from Sydney to Canberra within six hours. <laughs> and so it was like, who was going to do that? <laughs> You know, ordinarily you'd be a phone call and going, oh, so-and-so, can you all have a look at the options? And it was like, no, this is six hours, need to get her here. You know, what are the ramifications? Should we shut out of WA? You know, Palestinian who'd been displaced for decades, um, you don't want her stranded in Sydney, you know, for no reason. Yes. Um, so that experience, so, I mean, the result of that was we got her moved. She was in Canberra. She then ultimately flew to Brisbane and then to WA. So we got her there and that was extremely rewarding. But that hit me in the face quite strongly about, well, I saw how I operated in that time. No one told me I had to do this, that or the other. But as a leader, I knew that something had to happen. Mm -hmm. And if you have the resources, that's great. But you have to be prepared to be that, you know, the, the, the last person standing, if you like. Um, so it doesn't matter how high up you are on the chain or it doesn't matter how senior you think you might be or not. Um, it's what's the mission? What are you leading and what are you wanting to achieve? And you've got to be prepared to basically jump in and do what, what, what it is to achieve that. So I feel as if that really, that, that first um, experience molded how I viewed myself as a leader after that. Fantastic. When you were at Fragment or EY, did you look like, could you see a pathway for you? Like, had you wanted to stay there? Was there an obvious pathway? Oh, absolutely. Um, and both firms had a, you know, for, for an immigration lawyer, you know, working at either of those firms is, you know, that's, that's where you want to be um, from a, you know, structure perspective and size and all of that. They're great career choices. The ladder's there, but I think for, for the, the position that I was in at the time thinking of, you know, what am I passionate about? Um, interestingly, it was because I was at EY and in that corporate environment that I even got introduced to Talent Beyond Boundaries. Like I really question, and I really question whether I would have come across that opportunity if I decided to leapfrog somewhere else. 
Um, and it was, you know, kudos to, you know, my employer at the time saying, yeah, absolutely. This is a opportunity. And also thinking about my development because I'd already voiced, I wanted to do something different. I was losing my passion. Um, and even though that ladder was there and it was open to me if I wanted to go up that ladder, um, I also was in a very encouraging environment to say, well, no, you want to do something different. We'll give you some different work and we'll see whether the ladder is suitable for you or not. Yeah. Um, and if it's not, it was really sort of designing, you know, the role in the way that, you know, would suit me to keep my passion. It just so happened I had an opportunity and, you know, they were extremely supportive of that change. So working in immigration law, one of the things you shared with me is that there tends to be a higher number of females. Yeah, interestingly. Yeah. Um, and in both firms, I, I remember like we were, we actually had more women in our team than men in any other team. Um, and even at leadership level. So it wasn't just, you know, in terms of, um, you know, day-to-day casework, but leaders in both firms, there were many more women. And the interesting reflection on that is that I think the reason why um, there are more women in the immigration sector uh, is that the way of working is more conducive um, to to someone who has to balance between their work and life. Mm. Um, And that's a couple of things. One is obviously having a great employer um, to facilitate that. But the use of technology, um, you know, flexible work arrangements, um, the fact that, you know, immigration, Migration themselves operate in a very sort of tech savvy environment, being able to lodge applications online. Um, all of that really encourages, I think, being able to balance your work and life. Um, and what else? The other thing I found in the sector is that um, in terms of leadership, you're able to go up that ladder a lot easier. Yeah. Um, so I always think, you know, what's the difference? I mean, should we be learning from different sectors? Because I think not just in the immigration space, there are other, you know, broader sectors, not just the legal profession, where, you know, women are able to, to work more conducively in those environments. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that was a real tell. And that was also a real inspiration in thinking that, yeah, you know, one day I can actually be a leader in this space. I, I don't, didn't have to think about a ceiling, um, you know, in, in this space, which was great. Okay. So um, along the way in your career then, did you often, you know, I speak to a lot of um, female executives who can talk about times when they've experienced some of the sort of double binds about too hard, too soft, too aggressive and different things to do with their leadership styles. Did you ever have any of those experiences on the way through? Um, No, I think I was quite fortunate. And I think I share this with you, Melissa. It's like I almost um, feel just fortunate that I didn't have to come across that kind of culture Mm. um, in my previous experience. And in terms of how I lead, I often found that, and this is going back to my point about sometimes where you think equality is not necessarily a leadership quality ends up being a superpower. Um, very, very much applied to me. Um, You know, I'm a very details person. Um, so if you give me a case today, I will delve into the detail so much to be able to make a bigger, broader decision efficiently. Sometimes that is not a good leadership quality. Yes. Um, but funnily enough, I ended up becoming the leader of complex immigration problems in, in, you know, in my workplace um, because of that power. And that you know, naturally molded me into having people who came to me as a mentor, as you know, how do you com- how do you solve this complex problem? Where do you go to first? Um, and so I think that that was one aspect I felt okay. You can't assume a particular quality is not of a leadership quality. Um, 
What I also found is that um, when you are working like in a broader team, um, it's really, you know, the leader who, the person who leads is the person I think who will really dictate how you encourage leadership leaders to grow within the team. So I think um, the fact that the places that I worked were able to balance those different qualities between team members meant that they created more leaders even before you get to like executive level. Um, they were already molding people, identifying people for their superpowers and saying, okay, focus on this. Let's give them more of that work. Let's create a team around them. So it didn't feel like you were just someone sort of sitting in the corner doing some special project. They actually said, no, this is a quality that you can lead in. Um, a superpower that you can lead in. What would you call out, I think you've shared one with us in terms of your shift to Talent Beyond Boundaries. What would you call out as another kind of key moment for you that kind of elevated your own leadership capabilities? Um, I'd probably say the time of the Afghanistan crisis. Um, yeah. And that really was, so the interesting thing of when the crisis occurred is that Talent Beyond Boundaries, you know, thus far, we've been really focused on, let's get employers to, you know, make it an employer-led program, and it still is. It's really about, you know, what skills do you need to be filled? And we've got another talent pool that no one's tapped into, the, the skilled refugee talent pool, um, and we'll find you someone as in a, a usual international recruitment process. However, when the Afghanistan crisis unfolded, there was this overwhelming support from the private sector um, coming to Talent Beyond Boundaries asking, what can we do? Like, give us a candidate who's in trouble and, and we will find a role for them. So it was a real shift in thinking um, at the moment to kind of see, okay, how do, we, how do we approach this? Because we've always said, okay, you tell us the role you want filled and we'll find it. But here was the private sector saying, no, it's not just about us having a role. It's also about us creating a role, you know, a skill that we need nonetheless, but also helping someone who's in need. So mm. we had um, quite a bit of engagement um, working with uh, particularly Afghan career women. Um, so what we found is that, you know, yes, one of the crises is that, you know, women may, may be going backward in Afghanistan. Um, but one of the advantages is there's a whole generation of really educated Afghan women. Um, and it was really about, you know, how do we allow them to flourish if they can't in Afghanistan through employment opportunities externally? Um, so we found that we had people, you know, Afghan women signing up to our talent catalogue. We then started working with a group of chief executive women um, to essentially come up with a, you know, like a list of candidates who had key skills in key se sectors. And these amazing women who came together, um, you know, shared the CVs across their businesses and, and where they, you know, across um, businesses that they were sitting on leadership roles. And immediately we had people say, we want to interview this candidate, we want to interview that candidate. So that was firstly being able to shift in your thinking um, was one quality in terms of leadership that um, I had to think about, all right, how do, we, how do we work this? It's slightly different, but we can see the advantage. Um, the second, I think, defining moment working with sort of in that situation was finding out, okay, well, we've got this pilot, amazing pilot that addresses a lot of the red tape that prevents refugees from accessing this pathway, but it's also not designed as a crisis response. Um, so, 
candidates still have to do an English test or still have to do health exams, but they're in Afghanistan. Right. Everything is shut down. How are we going to work with that? So that was a moment where, um, you know, together with our CEO, we really had to think about, okay, what can we go back to government, government with and say, look, you've given us something that is, yes, well-designed, but here's a new situation. How can we adjust that um, to still achieve the same outcome, but taking into account this particular sort of crisis situation? Um, so that was for me, again, you know, um, working with government to say, look, this is the situation on the ground. Here are my proposed solutions, but you know what you can do um, within the legislative framework. And that collaboration with the Department of Home Affairs, uh, Affairs and the Minister's Office was amazing on that. Um, so we ended up getting an extra 50 places um, specifically for Afghans uh, as part of that program and a few processing adjustments, which really took into account issues like someone can't do their health examinations in Afghanistan. How can we adjust the process so they can and still get the visa? Mm -hmm. um, so I'd say that, you know, that particular moment really happened. And then, of course, we had the Ukrainian crisis unfold. But I felt what we experienced through Afghanistan really prepared us for you know, what's coming. So it really shifted our game and really changed, changed the game in, in how we engage with corporates and thinking about how to hire skilled refugees. What would you call out as the hardest point in, in your career? Um, the hardest point in my career, I think, would have been um, making the shift to talent beyond boundaries strangely tell enough. us about that was it it was it was yes yeah, so it was on the fact it was purely by the fact the economics of it is that I was on a on a pathway on a ladder in the corporate world right so you really have to make that sort of leap of faith to to jump off the ladder if that makes sense um, and this was for you know a not-for-profit organization um, that was starting out they had pilot programs you know, you could see the potential, but at the time, you know, as a qualified lawyer, um, thinking, okay, well, you know, my next step up, I could could could, could be going to director or partner, um, and thinking, okay, should I jump from this ship or not? Um, and am I going to sink on the way? Yes. Um, and I think that was the most difficult conversation to have, not if it was just left up to me, actually, now that I think about it, like if it was just me, um, and it was just sort of my individual space, it's different, but we don't live individually, we live with families, we live with bills to pay. Um, so it was really working through what's the potential, um, should I do this, talking to my partner about it. Um, and it was really his support that really enabled me to jump that sort of make that confident jump in the ship, um, to the ship. And I think that's what um, that the most difficult thing was to make the decision, but then having the support around me really pushed me to what I was passionate about. You shared with me, and I wonder if you can sort of retell the story, but it was around points in your career where you've had to challenge maybe some cultural norms um, in your own career. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this goes back to what I was sharing with you about my mum and, you know, um, my mum's a lawyer. Um, she came out to Australia to study with with my dad, and um, she all I saw was my mum as a career woman. <laughs> you know, she was running a household. She was, you know, she had her own practice. She was working for the for the Australian government solicitor, um, and so you know, she was a hardcore lawyer. <laughs> um, and I didn't see otherwise. But funnily enough, well, so firstly, that enabled me, and I think empowered me 
to just think of like I didn't think otherwise and my mum was always like you know you have to study you know choose choose a pathway that you you want but you know education is the way um, you know get yourself a job like that messaging was never in doubt Um, but it was only I guess as I grew up and then especially when you get to sort of marriageable age and you start talking to other community members and um, especially arranged marriages is you know it's very it's a very formal process so you know, people are asking you, oh, so what do you do? And, but then it's in those contexts that you realise that there are still segments of society that start going, oh, so what are you going to do after you get married? Are you going to, you know, stay with, stay working? Um, and funnily enough, a lot of people will actually say, we actually want someone who's educated that's got a degree. Yes. Um, but then it was this, you know, oh, are you going to do this? Or it's, you know, it's fine. We're quite supportive of you going to work, you know, after you get married. But, you know, we just want to make sure that the house is looked after. And so you just sit there and your jaw drops a little bit um, thinking, oh, I didn't think I had to actually talk about, you know, this. Um, and so that I think was uh not a challenge for me because I was obviously able to kind of say, yep, I'll, I'll be working <laughs> and I'll sort of continue. And yes, I, I'll, you know, partner with my partner to run our family. Um, so that, that that's, wasn't a real issue for me, but it was an eye opener that it doesn't matter how advanced society moves. There's still segments of society that are catching up. Um, and that's not a good, I'm not, I'm not talking about that in a sense of it's a good or bad thing because for some people that might actually work. Um, but I think it's a real, it's a challenge to communicate that to people to actually say, no, this is not a conversation. It's, I've studied to be a lawyer. I want to continue to be a lawyer, um, but I still care about my family values and I will still run my family fine. Um, and again, it was, it was actually fabulous women that empower you to get to that point as well. Like my mom, I have to call out my mother-in-law, like absolutely you know, she has been so supportive, like any of my career moves, even the one to Talent Beyond Boundaries, um, I talked to her about it and she's like, you know, do, do what you think is going to be, you know, that you can manage and what's, you know, good for your career. Think about it. Think about the salary. And she's very engaged in my career pathway. Um, and so I really think it's that real nurturing of the people around you that empowers you to, to go ahead on that journey. Um, but the challenge, the getting over those challenges is also in the hands of those women as well. Do you think your mum was ever challenged on that? If she was, I didn't know. <laughs> you know, it was quite, um, you know, on reflection, she probably was. Um, and I'm sure for her generation in particular, it would have been, you know, I, I think there was a lot of, um, in the previous generation, I've, I've heard from mum and others in the community say that it's sort of like if you're working, it's like, well, how do you look after your house? Or you're not good at looking after your household because you're working. Yes. Um, but it really was a question of like that was never passed on or never sort of I never saw my mum frustrated about that. Mm. Like she just charged on, you know, absolute power woman. Um, and, you know, she still practices law. <laughs> my parents still have their private practice, um, you know, 33, almost actually almost 40 years on. Um, and, and here she is continuing to just do, do her thing. Fantastic. Did you ever just, did you ever think about not going into law? No, that's an easy question to answer. No, I did not ever not thinking about, because all I knew, and I think um, my, my husband will probably argue on this um, because he, I think he thinks I was coached into it, <laughs> given that I was working with my parents, right. From, you know, high school onwards. Um, so I never thought about not pursuing the legal pathway. I actually quite enjoyed it. 
Um, yeah. And it just happened to be that, you know, when it came to, you know, year 12 and they said, you know, what do you want to do? I was like, yeah, law. That's what I'm thinking of. I want to become a lawyer. <laughs> Satya, it sounds in conversation with you that you've had a wonderful, um, you know, career, been part of some incredible organisations, had great role models around you. And I know from conversations with people like Div Pillay, who I've just finished a conversation with, that not everybody has, um, you know, has that opportunity, I guess, or has that experience when they come through the workplace. I just, I've got so many questions about this for you. Like, I just wonder with, you know, the incredible candidates that you're helping um, bring into Australia, you know, what are their experiences like, um, you know, and, and other questions I have of you around, you know, I'm very passionate about elevating more females into CEO and leadership roles. Yeah. Was that something that, or is that something that's on your mind? Why do you think we don't see enough people moving into those roles? I'm throwing a whole heap at you there. Yeah. You, you pick where you want to go with that conversation. Um, sure. But, yeah, lots lots of questions wrapped up in this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I might share about um, a few things about our candidates, I think, as I observe, um, because they are coming from different cultures, uh, yeah. as migrants do. It doesn't matter if you're, I mean, forget about the refugee label for a minute. Yes. Um, and I think what I have found quite amazing is that globally um, with the candidates that we work with, particularly in times of crisis, there's no question of who's going to get the job, <laughs> you know, between, you know, in a, in a partnership. Um, and often I found the candidates coming through, we actually did, I think a bit of, um, we wanted to present to the minister on how the pilot was going and we had to actually do a bit of a um, number number match of how percentage of men to women in terms of job offers um, for the pilot so far. And we're pretty much like 49 and 50% of job offers being issued to both females and males. Um, and I feel as if, you know, once a job offer is issued, part of our process is actually to sit down with the candidate and their family to talk about, are they comfortable with the job opportunity? Do they want to move to Australia? Are they comfortable with that move? Um, and often I'm finding that there's a lot of sort of partnership between um, partners and families and broader families, not just between their partners, but with parents about, you know, should they move? Um, on the flip side, I've also seen women being held back <laughs> of job opportunities that are actually issued um, but because it still doesn't have the endorsement or the support from key male members in the family. And this is sort of cultural. It's yes. not, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, generalise here. But there's actually an opportunity to remove themselves from displacement, but it's not endorsed. So it's like it's taken away. Um, so a lot of that has been quite like quite an eye opener of seeing both ends of the spectrum mm. um, and what we have to work with. So that sort of leads into your second question about why do you think we don't have as many women in senior executive positions? And I think it really goes down to those, spec like the end of the spectrums, um, which is, you know, women, I think, are still expected in a way to do a balance or have a balance. Um, there's no question of, and I think I remember seeing a video of someone saying this um, where they were like, well, you know, you, you'll be a CEO when you're a man and no one asks you, how do you balance your life with your family? <laughs> yes. um, but what I think what, what happens is for every woman who has to go up that corporate ladder, mm -hmm. she has to have a supportive network to make those arguments on the way. <laughs> and so some women 
persist and they kind of go, no, 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 this is what I want to do. And they are fortunate to have the network around them to allow them to do that. Mm. Um, But I also think women still have that battle. Um, The closer they get to that sort of senior executive level, um, that they have to make a choice of either being a good family person um, or a great career woman, woman without the, I guess, the sense that she can actually be both if she wanted to, or that we shouldn't be caught up in gender roles. Um, so I think that is as far as we have come, it's not to discount how far we've come. I still think we're having that dialogue <laughs> and each woman is having that dialogue in a different way in their context, which is pr- either preventing them from getting there or speeding their way up to, to those executive um, you know, leadership roles. Can I ask you then around, um, and you said ignore the refugee part of that for a Oh, yeah. Yeah, so let's now not ignore the refugee part of that. And what does that overlay on top of some of that? Yeah, so, um, and just, I guess, the reason why I often say, you know, remove the refugee label, it's almost like, well, we don't want a label to restrict someone's potential, right? But what being a refugee or a displaced person does is it adds complexity, ah, sorry, complexity um, to that dialogue uh, because it's not it's not just about career pathways or economics. It's actually just about survival, mm-hmm. um, and the employment opportunity um, is a it's a pathway for a better future. Um, but it adds that level of complexity of where should I go? You know. I'm leaving my home behind, Um, you know, for some of our candidates, they haven't been able to even work in their sort of studied field because of their displacement. So often there's this hesitance to say, well, I haven't worked in this field, but I do have the knowledge. I know I'm capable, Um, but seeing them go through that, you know, that confidence crisis of confidence is I think what being a refugee or that displaced person label has um, that adds complexity to, you know, taking up leadership roles or even just following, I think, a career pathway for some of our candidates. Have you ever, um, you know, felt that sort of confidence dip yourself or sometimes you hear the conversation around imposter syndrome? Has that ever come up for you in your career? Um, not at not at this stage, um, and I hope not in the future either. Um, I think um, if there was any sort of crisis, if you like, confidence crisis, it was really probably when I was working out where I wanted to go next, um, and you know why is it that I'm so passionate about something, but I can't see I can't see a future. Um, but it was never a question of oh, you know, can I do it? It's like where's the opportunity? How do I find it? How long were you in that space for, that sort of uncomfortable space Um, of working at work? I'd probably say a good three years. Um, It was a good three years because, and it's funny, I think it's the effect of having children as well, like not not just, uh, uh, not from a hormones perspective of what you're going through emotionally. It's more about, um, you know, you want to do something that's purposeful. And it's funny how having a child actually draws you to that, that thinking Otherwise, you do just get caught up in making the money to, to pay the bills. Um, and so I think that's the, you know, that that's the moment where you sort of go, how do I, like for three years, it wasn't just finding another job, right? You go on seek, you find another job and you go. <laughs> um, you, you'll get paid more, you'll, you know, have another ladder to go up. But that's not just the only choice. It's not just about that. Um, and being in that space for that three years, it was like I was really sitting patiently and I had, I guess, the fortune of being able to sit patiently mm. to wait for that opportunity before making a shift. 
what would you give, you know, I know there's a lot of people who wrestle with that decision um, between staying on a corporate track or, or stepping off and potentially finding something that, that to them is more meaningful. Yeah. How would you, you know, what, what do you think are the, thing, the key things people need to think through if they're going to go down that path? Yeah, good, good question. And I don't even know whether I thought through all of it. Would you have <laughs> said the three years up is probably another part of that question, you know, or? Yeah, um, that, that's an interesting question about the speed. I, I think the space that I was in, I had to sit patiently like that because, I mean, talent beyond boundaries, can I just say, is like a once in a lifetime, you know, opportunity like the mission that they're doing was just so different in the space now that um you know I've, I think I've told Steph our CEO this it's like literally I was waiting 14 years for an opportunity like that not just the three years yes. um but when you're thinking through it you do have to think about the financial aspect right I think you know to be straight up it's not just about closing your eyes and jumping so absolutely think of the money but don't stop at the money um, I think really do some self-reflection on why you're wanting to make that change. Um, and the key moment, as I explained right at the beginning, was that feeling of this overwhelming passion and, um, you know, purpose. And I think if something gives you that feeling, I think you can use that as a good judgment, like a good starting point, and then look at it from, you know, your usual things of salary, career growth, um, and then work out whether you're going to make that move or not. But I think the key decision maker is that real sort of buzz in your heart. Like, do you really think that this is something that you've been waiting for, that you think is going to give purpose to your life? Because everything I think will just fall right into place um, with that. And you said to me in, a, in such a lovely way when we first met that you're, and you described it differently today, but you said that your heart started beating faster. When yes, you absolutely. Absolutely. Like I still remember seeing the advertisement um, and I was like, I have to do this. How do I like how what, what's next? What do I do next? Um, but it was really that video. Um, the video that I mentioned was the one that gave me that sort of warm and fuzzy feeling. But when I saw the advertisement and the moment was there to make the change. Yeah, absolutely. My heart started racing. Thank you so much for, you know, it's it's so wonderful to see someone using their voice and you've got a powerful voice, but, you know, choosing and using that voice um, to open up incredible futures for people um, and, and on the flip side to help businesses here, um, you know, continue to thrive and find solutions right now. It's very meaningful, the work that you're doing, Sasha. Can I um, ask you the final question that I ask everybody which is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Um, no, I, I think brave feminine leadership uh, is, I think actually the key word is brave. <laughs> and I think in any leader, um, it's that, I think brave feminine leadership is really about making those brave choices um, and following either, you know, particular pathway or making brave decisions um, without fear, um, that I think is really what brave feminine leadership is about, is like bre breaking those boundaries um, without fear. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's that's probably my sum up. <laughs> it's not very extensive. <laughs> and you're, um, you know, I can't help but draw the parallel, though, that you are surrounded by people who are making these incredibly brave 
Absolutely. Um, situations every day. So wonderful to have your voice as part of the conversation. Thank you so much. And for people that don't know, it took us several times to get to today uh, between a, a mix of illnesses and voice losses. So fabulous to have you here. Thank you so much for adding your voice to the conversation. No worries. Thanks so much, Melissa. It's been a privilege to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. 